Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Currency Exchange, a NatWest Markets podcast all about foreign exchange markets. For the second consecutive week, we're facing uh, some pretty important central bank decisions across major economies. In the week prior, we heard from the Bank of Japan and from the European Central Bank. And this week, we heard from the Fed and the Bank of England, who in some ways gave us similar messages and in other ways gave us somewhat different messages. So to talk about these developments and what they mean for global currency markets, I'm glad to be joined by Paul Robson, who runs our G10FX strategy team over in London. Paul, thanks very much for joining. Well, thanks very much for the uh, invitation. Like you say, it's not often we get back-to-back podcast recordings. I think it just shows you that the last couple of weeks in terms of policy announcements and the the data has been actually quite quite rich. I think it's also important that where we are in the economic cycle, where we're sort of moving from this tightening cycle to an easing cycle and an inflection point in central banks. So I think that's quite a lot to talk about uh, this week and important for currency, certainly. Yeah, I think inflection point's a great way to think about it because markets and central banks in some ways are sending us different messages about when they think this inflection point is coming between uh, interest rates that are likely on pause in most economies versus when cuts might actually start uh, coming through. Certainly last week, as we talked about the European Central Bank, sort of gave us maybe a bit more of a dovish message. Uh, But we heard from the Bank of England today, Paul, so I want to start there. What did we hear from the Bank of England today, uh, and how does that impact your, you know, your thinking on uh, UK monetary policy and what that might mean for interest rates? Yeah, I think when all said and done uh, from today's Bank of England sort of announcement and the minutes and the, the statement and the, the press conference was it was a, a mild hawkish surprise uh, relative to a dovishly priced market. Now. You know, using the word modest and relative, it, it, I think it highlights that it, it wasn't a dramatic uh, meeting. But compared to other central banks, uh, I think it just shows you that the the Bank of England feels they're just a little bit further away from that inflection uh, point. I, I think they made comments about it, inflation. Uh, they, they cut the reference to sort of further monetary policy tightening might be necessary. Um, I think that that was largely expected. I think a lot of central banks have been doing the the same. Uh, But it was the vote count that uh, always attracts uh, interest. And I thought that was really quite interesting. We actually had two members of the Monetary Policy Committee still wanting to hike rates. We had six who wanted them on, on hold, and we even got someone who wanted to to cut them, but uh, she's the most dovish person uh, on the MPC. So I don't think that that was a a particular surprise. And when you compare that to other central banks that have been sort of guiding markets to expect uh, easier uh, policy, I'm sure we'll get on to uh, one of those central banks later, the the Ritz Bank, which I thought was particularly uh, interesting, um, and they were also um, highlighting that inflation is, you know, coming lower, and that's that's welcome. But perhaps it's just not coming down quickly enough, or they wanted uh, more evidence. And here it centres on the service sector, something that we've concentrated on in in previous uh, podcasts for the UK sort of service-based economy. Uh, when we think about goods and goods prices, they can go up in price very quickly. They can come down very quickly if they're driven by commodity prices, energy prices. But people uh, don't tend to get cheaper over time. They tend to get more expensive. And and therefore, the inflation pressures uh, in the UK might just take a little bit longer. And I think the central bank just wants to be more confident that that's actually uh, happening. And I, I think in terms of overall monetary policy, 
it probably supports the idea that the, the Bank of England just goes a little bit more slowly. Uh, and so we keep to the uh, call that we had previously that the first cut uh, from the Bank of England doesn't arrive until sort of after the summer in, in August. So still quite a long uh, way to go. So that seemingly, I, I think, it, I think the Bank of England, you know, maybe you could call it maybe an incremental dovish shift, but clearly not the same level um, of dovishness that we saw from other central banks. I mean, no, compared to the ECB, and we'll talk about European data in a second. But before I ask you that, I want to ask you about what you think this means for sterling. I mean, we have seen euro sterling has kind of stalled a little bit here at the lows over the last couple of sessions. Uh, the hawkish surprise this morning, uh, in, in hawkish relative to the market, I think, only an incremental move dovish, maybe not as much as markets had been expecting. What do you think this means for sterling here um, as we think about the sort of sequencing and the level of commitment to these uh, sort of pushback against the market? How are you feeling about sterling here uh, as we consider these uh, these developments? Yeah, our, our views remain unchanged. We actually think sterling holds up relatively uh, well. And I, I think increasingly, and the, one of the takeaways from this week, actually, from all the events, is I think you are getting this divergence between central banks who are going uh, a little bit later uh, and those that are guiding to going a little bit earlier. And I think sterling can perform relatively well against those currencies where central banks are guiding to earlier uh, cuts. And, and something that we've been talking about for I don't know, three or four months now is that sterling does feel uh, an interest rate play sort of uh, yields uh, supportive. Um, there's not there's not other things really um, important for the currency. If we were having this conversation a couple of years ago, as we've sort of discussed previously, it might have been the energy crisis, it might have been COVID, but, but that's all sort of uh, washed out of the, the economy and you're left with yield uh, and growth. OK, growth prospects might not be great, but they're not great in a, a wide range of uh, economies. Uh, but currencies over the short term do track or tend to track interest rate moves. So if we're right and you know incrementally dovish from the Bank of England, but compared to other central banks on a relative basis, uh, then maybe you're just a little bit more confident that the currency does well. And actually, some of the data this week I, I thought was quite interesting. There was second tier, but I think sometimes these sort of lesser watch numbers can be quite quite interesting. So in the UK, we had evidence that house prices have been a little bit stickier, um, outperforming a sort of bearish expectations across a wide range of uh, economists. And a couple of the business surveys um, have been ticking up, which I think just shows you that maybe the UK growth narrative is moving through pay, um, peak pessimism. You know, maybe that is already in the price. And for here, maybe UK assets are seen to be cheap and might attract foreign capital, and that matters uh, for the currency. Certainly from our side, of, uh, from my side of the Atlantic, uh, it does feel like the view on the UK from an economics perspective is almost permanently on the negative side, right? And so this idea of pricing out of peak pessimism or moving away from that um, it certainly rings true in, in my mind. It certainly feels like some of those uh, the, the sort of negatives for the UK economy um, have been sort of the feature of the consensus for a very long time. And it's not a new theme that we've been talking about for sure, but it is one, I think, it, and, it, and it makes some sense, right, that in sort of higher inflation, higher rates, less flexibility maybe to cut the policy rate by the Bank of England, that's supportive for the currency, but it may help to sort of entrench these negative views uh, on growth as well. So certainly interesting 
uh, as always with the sterling in particular, thinking about rates versus growth. Uh, you mentioned the data in the UK. It was sort of some second tier data. I did want to ask you about some of the data that we got in Europe this week. We got some uh, first tier data in particular. We got some inflation data um, in the EU. How are you thinking about uh, the euro here uh, through some of these through some of this big data releases that we've had uh, over the past couple of days? Yeah, in terms of the data, you're you know, exactly right. It was the euro area inflation numbers that I think offered so much. But in the end, just delivered so little for currency markets because it was broadly in line with uh, expectations. I, I think one of the takeaways is that, you know, inflation is coming lower, it's trending lower, but it's not doing that in a straight line linearly. Um, and you are going to get the odd surprise. So the, the data were just a little bit stronger than expected. I think markets were uh, maybe expecting something a little bit uh, weaker. The sort of inflation trends are, are pretty well uh, established. And that was across the euro area as a whole. But we got a, a, a early heads up from uh, the German data. So I don't think it really changes the, the outlook and the narrative. The ECB sort of dovish turn uh, last week. Uh, and I think this data sort of played to that. So I still think, you know, markets can realistically expect the first cut to come from the ECB in June. I don't think the data changed that. Uh, but for currencies, where where's the risk around that central case? Uh, and for me, it's just that the rate cuts from the ECB come a little bit earlier um, and potentially as early as April. And that might be quite a you know significant period ahead of the Fed and the Bank of England. And I think that just weighs on the uh, the currency. And as you know, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, these two groups of currencies, those where central banks are going earlier, um, but those that are going a little bit later. And I think the euro fits into that early camp. So uh, underperformance potentially against uh, sterling for the short term um, and against the dollar. But I'm sure we'll uh, turn to the or I, I know we'll turn to the uh, Fed in a few minutes. Uh, all in good time, Paul, all good time. I mean, thinking about Europe versus the UK, you sort of brought up the issue of UK being a uh, services-oriented economy. And we know that some of the economies in Europe, in particular, uh, Germany is a lot more subject to manufacturing. So maybe a bit more risk coming from the international side as well. You think about some of the data in China this week that continue to struggle. And obviously, Chinese assets, you know, look at Chinese equities, for example, those have sort of already started to fade a little bit of that post-stimulus bounce. And so, you know, it certainly feels like the evolution of the data is supporting this relative monetary policy divergence in the way these two economies, uh, the way these two central banks are talking in the way that markets have to account for the credibility of these central banks as they deliver these uh, these messages. You mentioned the Riksbank before. They also had a decision this week out of Sweden. Uh, I think it was a very interesting one. Uh, can you talk up through about... Um, Talk through their decision for me. Uh, what, what did they decide this week and uh, how are you thinking about the outlook for uh, for Sweden and how that relates to the currency? Yeah, I, I thought that, that was really quite interesting uh, announcement from the, the Ritz Bank um, today. They didn't have a monetary policy report to back up their, their sort of change in, in guidance. And, and normally central banks would want the sort of backup of new updated forecasts if they're going to change. And you know, they didn't change interest rates They're, that they weren't um, expected to, but they did change their guidance. They were really quite dovish. They've been more on the hawkish side up to this point. I think they've been worried about weakness of the currency or if they guide markets to earlier rate cuts, the currency weakens, it in, import inflation into the economy at a time when you're trying to get uh, inflation lower. So 
Uh, they were talking about that you wouldn't have to wait until potentially the November meeting. That was their previous guidance, uh, that rate cuts could come earlier than that. And they also said rate cuts could come um, in the first half of the year and that they could come ahead of the ECB um, and the, the Fed. So in terms of the overall um, takeaway, I, I think it was uh, dovish. Uh, the currency was a little bit weaker, wasn't dramatically uh, so. But I think for the currency, I think markets might be looking at the, the, the Swedish krona in the wrong way. I think that they see dovish Ritzbank policy quicker easing in monetary policy, and that is negative uh, for the currency. And of course, when I've talked about sterling and the euro, that would be consistent with that. Uh, but for me, I think when we think about Sweden and what markets have worried about for the last sort of 18 months, it's been about commercial real estate, the sensitivity of the economy to higher interest rates for a, an economy that's borrowed uh, a lot uh, and people worry about the knock-on impacts onto the economy. Um, and the currency has gone down when people are worried about that. So for me, the opposite should be true. That is the Ritz Bank uh, lowers interest rates and people worry less about uh, the property sector and commercial real estate. I think that the the worries that have been priced into the currency just uh, alleviate. So I actually think the Swedish krona, even though the Ritz Bank will be in one of those that early easers, because they're very similar to the ECB, I actually think the currency will do relatively well. So uh, the Swedish krona does uh, rises against uh, currencies like the Swiss franc and the euro potentially. I think that's very interesting. And it's also something that you have highlighted before is that you, know, you look at short term correlations versus interest rate differentials and currencies. And one of the things that I know you've highlighted is that the currency, the differentials actually lean in favor of the argument you were just making that uh, correlations are sort of inversed for Sweden when it comes to interest rate differentials uh, compared to what we're used to, where higher interest rates are most often associated with stronger currency. But I mean, I think just to reinforce the point, I think it's a really good one that the risks to that economy, if the market sees the risks to the downside to growth so heavily focused on the interest rate sensitive sectors, then there is that growth positive. And for a small open economy uh, like Sweden, this is probably also true in a number of other economies uh, where you also face issues with, uh, you know, with uh, heavily indebted housing markets. That's a kind of, you know, uh, that's the kind of thing that we should be thinking about as, you know, maybe we shouldn't apply the same uh you know, the, the same playbook on rates to all different economies. And so I think that's really interesting nuance that you brought up. Yeah, I, I just think in terms of um, divergence across the major economies, I think we've previously talked about how um, not all economies are born equal and they all have their slightly different um, balances, uh, not least the, the US. So we can't uh, finish this podcast without uh, covering off uh, this week's FOMC meeting. Some quite interesting comments, I thought, from uh, Chairman Power. Just wondering what your overall takeaway uh, from uh, the meeting was and, and ultimately what that, that means for the dollar. So from the Fed decision on Wednesday, I think it was very interesting that I felt like it was a very Goldilocks, very soft landing style press conference. You know, what the market took away, the main language that the market took away was Powell was asked directly, first, I should say from the outset, the Fed did not change policy. They were not expected to change policy. And all of the question was about whether or not the Fed was getting closer to a position where they could adjust their policy, cut their policy rate as soon as the March meeting. You know, as you know, uh, frequent listeners to this podcast will know that we've been very focused on these March odds. 
as sort of a, a bellwether for the dollar that as they had gotten a bit over their skis at the end of last year, we felt that the risk of the dollar uh, lent pretty clearly to the upside. Now it's a bit more, it's a bit closer to fair. And so we were looking at this meeting as what will Powell say about March specifically? Will he make March on the table or will he try and take it off the table? And I think this is the comment that the market focused so clearly on, which was Powell essentially saying that it's not likely that the Fed is going to have enough confidence in their inflation outlook to cut the policy rate at their March meeting. So that was the sort of call it the hawkish comment that I think the market tried to grab onto in the immediate aftermath of the press conference. The dollar did rally through the Fed's decision. Uh, but that comment was made in what was otherwise, I consider, a fairly dovish, uh, a fairly dovish press conference where Powell gave a lot of uh, gave a lot of inferences to this idea of higher growth coming without stimulating inflation because you've seen improvements in labor markets, labor market into better balance. So if you compare the way Powell was speaking uh, at his meeting this week with how he was speaking maybe six months ago, I think what you will see is that the Fed was a lot more concerned about strong growth as a risk to the top side for inflation. And I think that's natural, right? That if growth is performing strong, then that feeds through to top side risks for inflation through higher demand and you know better uh, consumer spending and whatnot. But what we have seen over the last six months is that the consumer and the economy is held in very well, but the inflation has moved so definitively lower. And it sounds like Powell was a lot more constructive and who could blame him, right? Because the data have been pushing in this direction. He was a lot more constructive on this idea that the labor market does not have to slow down for them to get better confidence that inflation is still trending in the right direction. So even though Powell seemed to suggest that a March move is not likely, that's also consistent with our view. A number of sell-side shops uh, have pushed back expectations, some who had moved forward to March as their base case seemed to have pushed back in the aftermath of these comments. I think that's appropriate. But the overall tone of the press conference, I think, actually pointed in a pretty dovish direction, um, opening up the door for the Fed to consider rate cuts without necessarily needing to see that growth slow down. Um, and that's a big part of what we've been talking about in terms of insurance cuts, uh, the Fed getting a little bit more flexibility, the inflation giving the Fed that flex flexibility to maybe make that kind of move, something that the, uh, you know, the Bank of England, for example, really doesn't seem to have. They don't seem to have the inflation uh, inflation numbers giving them that flexibility. So I think the market took away maybe a somewhat hawkish reference to the March meeting. But I think the overall direction of travel uh, from the Fed's press conference was in the dovish and constructive direction. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the key takeaway. I think all central banks are ultimately guiding to to lower rates. It will be really interesting. I think for currencies, it will just be the the speed and the ultimate depth of that that monetary easing. You know, I think there's quite a lot of uncertainty about when central banks uh, finally start cutting, how quickly they they cut, and 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 how deep. And I, I think there's going to be lots of iterations through you know the coming twelve months, and it'll be interesting to see where we are. Um, at the end of the year and, and to what extent that um, impacts currencies. But at the moment, it, it's a sort of synchronized easing, isn't it? And slow down um, and perhaps just keeps the, like you've been talking about, keeps the dollar uh, strong or maybe just a little bit stronger for a little bit uh, longer. Yeah, I mean, and our thinking on this is that when the Fed cycle gets going, it might be deeper and faster than the market is currently pricing, but it starts a little bit later. And so from a dollar perspective, it's about timing. It's about finding that moment of inf that inflection point, if you will, between when 
the Fed, when, we think once the Fed reaches that confidence that inflation uh, is in a position where they can cut, we think they're actually going to be in a position to move a little bit more aggressively. And so the dollar negatives that could potentially come from a Fed cycle feel a little bit more backloaded to us. So we were always a bit skeptical of leaning too heavily into dollar weakness early in 2024. We still continue to hold that view. Uh, but we're probably getting closer to this point where, you know, the the March meeting is now priced for about a 40 percent chance uh, of a rate cut still. We think there's probably a little bit of scope for that to come down, of course, all dependent on the data. Right. But I think the long term trajectory is probably still the right one that the Fed starts moving. We think they start going in May, but that once they start going, they may have scope to move faster. And so that's probably from the monetary policy channel means that you could get some a much more clear impetus for dollar weakness, but we still think that's probably later starting. And for the near term, probably feel like there's still a little bit of juice to come out of the March meeting in terms of uh, market implied easing. So with that, maybe a good time to leave it. Uh, thank you very much, Paul, for joining. And thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider giving it a like and also subscribe to our channel so you can get our latest podcasts once they're released. Thank you very much. <laughs>